Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. Voters in Minnesota were loud and clear when they elected the most diverse group of state lawmakers. The state capitol has seen at least 35 out of 201 state legislators in Minnesota identify as people of color, and 11 lawmakers identify as LGBTQ. That's the most diverse representation we've seen yet here in Minnesota. And remember back in November, the big news about the election of the first black women to the state Senate? Three were elected at the same time. They are the first black women to serve in the Minnesota Senate in the nearly 165 years it has been around. Well, now the legislature is in session and these elected officials are meeting to talk about important policies that will impact communities around the state. So today in the studio with me, I have two guests who work at the state capitol as administrators. They're joining us to share what goes on in that building and how we as members of the public can actively participate in the legislative process, observe what our elected leaders are doing who represent us, how we can voice our opinions and gain access to information that we want. I'm taking your phone calls. I want you to to really ask us anything. What questions do you have about how the Minnesota legislature works and what resources you have uh, as a member of the public? What access do you have to that? You can call us at these numbers, 651-227-6000. Again, 651-227-6000 or 800 Two four two twenty eight twenty eight. You can also reach me on Twitter. I'm at Angela Davis NPR. Let's bring in our two guests. Tom Bodern is here. Tom is the secretary of the Minnesota Senate. And in that role, he helps the members of the Senate with the legislative procedure and during the Senate floor sessions. It's his job to be the chief operating officer for the Senate. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Angela. Thanks for having me. We also have Elizabeth Lincoln here. Elizabeth is the director of the Minnesota Legislative Reference Library. She's worked at the library since 1989 and became the director back in 2013. Now, the library has a collection of general public policy and an archive of state government publications available to staff with the House and Senate. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Nice so, to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you, too. Now, both of you are, uh, to be clear, part of the nonpartisan staff, who, uh, and you've worked at the Minnesota legislature for many years. Each of you very familiar with how things work and how, how people uh, also are curious and passionate about issues so they can follow along with the process. So I hope this is a good conversation that we learn some things. I have lots of questions. But, uh, Tom, first, tell us more about what you do as Secretary of, uh, of the Senate. What is, what is your job? I, I have this vision of you walking around like with a, with a, a a rule to slap people on their wrists when they don't do what's right. <laughs> well, it's not quite like that, I hope. Uh, but yeah, and I actually, I find myself a little tongue-tied sometimes trying to explain it. It's a, it's a little unusual. There are two principal parts to the role. Uh, the first, as you said earlier, is really serving as a parliamentarian, and that's mm-hmm. really in an advisory role. Um, I, I, I serve all members of the Senate if there are questions about a particular item of legislative process, uh, try to help them with that. Think about there might be several ways to get to the particular problem they're trying to solve um, and, and work with them using the Senate rules and some of the other resources we have to guide legislative process. So that's that's sort of the more visible piece. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, when the Senate is in session, I'm at part of the front desk for the Senate um, and assisting the president with basically managing the flow of legislation through the, the Senate floor activity. The second part is sort of more behind the scenes, and that's that's the more administrative role. I manage um, the Senate's budget and have managed in particular more directly the Senate's nonpartisan staff, but help set policies and procedures for all Senate employees. So 
I'm, and you were there behind the scenes working as a a researcher and you're a lawyer. You were the, sort of the general counsel prior to this job. I was the director of the Office of Senate Counsel for yeah, about 10 years and have been with the legislature in an attorney role, but primarily drafting legislation for yeah, more than more than 25 years. Mm-hmm. And when you walked in, I asked you, so h- how would you describe what is unique about this session and, and how things seem to be going right now? And you first thing you said, things are happening fast. Things are happening really fast. And yeah, you know, whether you agree with it or not, um, there there's or whether you like it or not, there's one party control of state government in Minnesota. And that's that's the driving factor. I mean, we could name some others that um, you can see very clearly in a number of metrics, like the number of bills that have been introduced in each chamber is staggering compared to uh, previous years. I mean, it's, you know, 30, 40 percent higher, I think, uh, in some, you know, depending which week you measure it. Uh, you can see uh, the number of committees that are hearing bills and producing what's called a committee report when the committee has taken action on that bill. Um, it's they're, they're moving really quickly. Uh, the number of bills that have been enacted so far. Um, it greatly exceeds what would, you know, I guess I'll say bills that do some significant things um, greatly exceeds what we'd see in most sessions. The amount of time spent on the floor of the Senate uh, and the House, um, again, way ahead of where it normally is. And Mike, my, my feeling, and this is just from interviewing uh, people during the election season, that there is heightened interest that even for me, I'm a lot more curious about what individuals are doing and saying and how things are going, because there are some just some big issues that people are passionate about. Uh, are you you finding that among the public too that there's just everything's a little heightened right now i think there is an increased level of interest one small item i would point to um, there's an office called senate information which is there to serve the public and assist with sort of helping make the legislature a more transparent place so some evidence that we're seeing of increased interest is they have a twitter account and they'll follow that okay is it m n senate info it, that sounds right. It Something couldn't like be anything that. else. Yeah, yeah, I have to look that up. But yeah, I follow that. And so what do they do again? Well, uh, they do a variety of things, um, and they can help anyone who wants to call uh, with a whole bunch of very basic questions. But uh, to your point on evidence of public interest, um, their Twitter account has really taken off, and, and, and they're just seeing a tremendous amount of interest in kind of updates on what's happening with bills while they're being debated uh, on the mm-hmm. floor of the Senate. And I did I check. It is. Uh, the, it's at MN Senate Info. Thank you. All right. I'm going to come back to you. I want to hear more about Elizabeth. And first, what's your perception? You've been there many years. What seems maybe different about this session? Uh, heightened interest? Are things, in your point of view, moving quickly, too? Very quickly. Uh, there's... Um, and this is the busiest month for committee action. So there's um, today they're in the House. They're hearing 50 bills. Um, there are 29 hearings scheduled in, between the House and Senate. So it's a very busy week, very busy month. Mm-hmm. Um, but the pace of things is as far exceeded previous years. Really very high, very fast paced. And and tell me about this Minnesota Legislative Reference Library. Uh, I described it a little bit, but what's what's the value of that? What is it? Uh, the library was established um, in 1969 to um, uh, collect and disseminate and provide information to legislators and staff. Uh, so our collection is mostly a public policy collection, although we have some legal resources and we uh, collect things that uh, legislators can do something about. Um, so agriculture and education and taxation, those are the topics that we're following closely. Uh, we have a, a large collection of newspaper resources and magazine resources because 
um, people are eager to hear what other states are doing and what um, new ideas are. So we um, assist legislators and staff and um, both partisan and nonpartisan with their information needs. That's the bulk of what the library is working on. So I'm I'm just glad to hear that there is a large staff. I, I think I read Tom that that you oversee maybe 200 staff people there at the Capitol who who are supporting the elected officials. The Senate Your has side. about 206 employees, and about a hundred of them or so report through others uh, to me. But yeah, do have a role in managing and setting policy for for those employees. All right, uh, we're going to take some phone calls now from listeners as uh, we talk about uh, the the inner workings of the state capitol. What happens at the Minnesota legislature? How does this process work? And how is as we how do we as individuals? How can we be more involved with the policies that will directly impact us? Uh, uh, how do we do this? Two people in studio who can answer uh, I think most of your questions. But call us at six five one two two seven six thousand again six five one. Two two seven six thousand or eight hundred two four two twenty eight twenty eight. 242 Phone lines are already starting to fill. So let's uh, take some phone calls. Uh, Tom and Elizabeth in New Brighton. We have Paul on the line. Good morning, Paul. And what do you want to ask? Yes, I'd like to ask. I've been uh, trying to uh, make contact with senators, representatives at, at the Capitol. And as I searched the website for such, I'm not finding direct emails, and it makes it difficult to try to contact them with detailed mm-hmm. questions. And when I call the phone numbers, I'm getting an assistant, and it's their voicemail, and don't get a reply back. So with the fast-moving legislation that we've been talking about and the one-sided lean with the uh, legislature, it makes it very difficult when this uh, activity oh. is happening to make quick contact and voice okay, so my Paul, concern. It sounds like your question is, how, how do we get a hold of, of these folks? How do we, what's the most effective way, Tom, to get a hold of a state senator or a state representative um, and, you know, either talk to them in person or just communicate, you know, our questions or what we want them to know? What would you tell folks? Well, for sure, I would urge direct personal uh, contact. And, you know, I mean, legislators are going to have their own preferences, and I can't speak to all of those. There's a high volume of email. There's a timing factor to a lot of this. And, um, you know, as Paul suggested, it's it's difficult when things are really busy uh, sometimes for folks to find the time to respond. But um, I think calling the office, speaking to their legislative assistant, um, and, and looking for some engagement there, you know, how, how would this member like to hear more? about my concerns about a particular topic is really the best way to jump into it. So call the office, but how do I find the phone number? What's oh, the best website or where do I for go? Sure. Well, yeah, and we can talk. There are a tremendous amount of resources available uh, on the web to help people get connected to the state legislature. And if you Google Minnesota Senate, probably the easiest way to get there. I, I have found it almost, and Elizabeth is the expert on these things. Okay, um, so I start by Googling Minnesota Senate, and yep. then that's going to give me the all the names and then their, their offices and their contact information? At the bottom of almost every screen on the legislative website, there is a um, link to phone numbers. Mm -hmm. And so that will take you directly to um, the phone numbers that are really important, like House information and Senate information and the library, which they answer their phones all the time. Um, Those numbers are really important, but it also gets you to the phone numbers and emails, in many cases, of legislative staff and legislators. So there's a lot of phone access and a lot of email access that can be made. 
So, Tom, you told me earlier um, that there are some magic words to use, either if in an email or if I'm calling that as actually like, for example, uh, Aaron Murphy is my state senator. I want to meet with Aaron Murphy. How do I do that? Well, I, you know, as we said, would begin with calling your office um, and then letting the staff or whoever you're speaking with there, uh, let them know you're her constituent. Um, and that being, word? I'm that a constituent? Is, that's a powerful word with, with state legislators, for sure. And then I think being concise has a lot of value. You know, get to the point of what it is you would like to talk about, uh, the concern that you want to express. They're, they're busy people, and they will value contact with someone who's, you know, upfront and, and clear about what they want to accomplish uh, with meeting and talking to them. That, that would be my advice. I can't guarantee 100% satisfaction, but, um, you know, this, it's a very, very human dynamic, right? So a lot of different approaches. But you're in conversation. Both of you are meeting with these legislators. Do they really want interaction with, with the public, with people who voted for them? Do you find that they do get some value out of those conversations, Elizabeth? I think so. Um, they are very approachable. They got elected. So they're very generally really good talking to people. Um, and I think they value the thoughts, especially of their constituents. Mm. That I think is really an important factor. They're, they are short on time and they're not probably as interested in somebody who doesn't live in their district or is not engaged in a bill that they're uh, – that they're involved in. So being a constituent, being in the, the district makes a difference. Tom, what would you want to add? Well, the like, one, you know, okay. thought, I, I spend a lot of time listening to these folks, uh, you know, committee debates, floor debates. Frequently during a debate, they will mention a conversation they had with a constituent when they want to seek and you know, right. persuade others. I do hear that <laughs> in interviews or on the floor. Like right. I was, so there, so I guess it depends on the individual, but they recognize there is a value. Very um, important to be engaged. To be yes. engaged. Because that's actually information to them. Like, what are people really experiencing and saying? And what could be maybe some useful tools to solving a problem? Right. Uh, let's take another phone call as we talk about the legislative process, uh, what's happening at the state capitol, and how we as members of the public can be more involved. Uh, the number is 651-227-6000 or call 800-242-2828. In Chanhassen, uh, Janet's on the phone this morning. Good morning, Janet. What do you want to tell us? Well, good morning. I would love to share my experience of a connection with my senator, Julia Coleman. Um, we actually had, as part of a coalition, we had some time scheduled at the Capitol for a Economic and Financial Literacy Advocacy Day, which got snowed out and the Capitol was closed. So as a result of that, we did another outreach to reschedule and I was able to connect with uh, both Julia Coleman and uh, Lucy Reams' um, legislative assistants uh, to schedule time with them. And yesterday, we had a 15-minute conversation with Julia and, and Senator Coleman, and we were able to have four people on the call along with her to talk about our concerns regarding um, a proposed requirement for personal finance course to be part of a graduating requirement to graduate from high school for the state of Minnesota. And I'm a financial planner, so I see the need for this all the time. We all see it in our community, so, in our country. So Janet, you were, um, able, to, you were able to have a conference call? Money. You were able to get a conference call with your senator? We got a conference call with four people plus the senator. And it was a 15-minute call just before she had to break. 
to go to session, and it was fantastic. She was a good, very good listener. We were able to schedule, uh, I think it was the third time we had scheduled time with her, and because of weather and conflicts, uh, we were unable to connect until yesterday, but yesterday we had access, and I think that's mm-hmm. what it is about, is having access, access so our voices can be heard. All right. Thank you. That's Janet and Chan Hassan. So we had a caller who asked about, like, I'm not having success making contact. Janet, who was able to have some success and actually get a conference call. And what do you, you make uh, uh, of those two different scenarios, Elizabeth, and, and how people feel when they are, have an opportunity to be heard? Uh, I think um, legislators are different. And mm-hmm. um, uh, and it also their schedules are different. And I think um, more often, I think it's the experience with Senator Coleman where they're trying to work out a time frame so that they can connect with people. I think coming to the Capitol, too, is very effective. Um, there are a lot of times when you can just step right into their office and chat with them. Um, or testify in a uh, committee hearing if you have concerns. Um, Tell me more about that, uh, about going to the state capitol, accessing the building. Like, how does that work? Like, like, what are the hours? What is the process? Do I have to let them know ahead of time? Like, what do I have access to if, like, right now I want to go over there? Uh, the building is wide. All three buildings are wide open, the Capitol, the state office building, and the Minnesota Senate building. And you can um, go and try to meet with your legislator. It's sometimes convenient to do that. Um, and sometimes they don't have time for mm-hmm. you. Um, but you're always welcome in those spaces there. Um, and you're always welcome to testify at committee hearings. So if you're tracking a particular bill, um Almost everyone can testify if they are interested in that particular provision. Tom, tell me more about going to the building and choosing to observe or to testify. What should people know about how that works? Sure. Um, I think one important piece on the logistics uh, is that the main page for the Senate, and I think the House both have, if you scroll a little ways down on the website. What's the website again? uh, Senate.mn. Okay. So info, yes, yeah. Senate. Well, that's that's oh. for info. Oh, that's yep. a different one. Yeah, here's. I mean, you know, honestly, I probably didn't prepare as much as I should have. I just Google it every time I want to use it. And if you <laughs> Google, Google Minnesota, Minnesota Senate, Senate you'll, okay, you'll, you'll then these websites there. come up. Okay, yeah. I just want to be and, clear. And, and the okay. main page is packed with a lot of really helpful information, including uh, just the basics on logistics. Where do you park? Um, is there anything to eat when I get there? When is the oh. building open? All is there of anything that. to eat there? Um, there yeah, there is. There's a cafe that's open okay. during the session. Um, so yeah, it's it's you know there is an effort to make this relatively easy for people. Parking can sometimes be a challenge, yes. but you know those are the things you want to know before you get there. And so, if I want, how would I even know about which hearings are happening and what day and time? How do I know that? Well, Elizabeth did her homework before we came here today and told you there okay. were how many hearings? Fifty uh, today. She said there were yeah. fifty. Well, twenty nine hearings scheduled, oh. and of I don't know how many Senate bills, but sure. fifty. No. Yeah. 50 House bills are being heard okay. today in committee. So it's a busy day on the committee schedule. So and there's a there's a schedule. There's a posted, schedule. Post it on the website. Looks okay. like a calendar. Click on the day and it'll pull up all the hearings scheduled for that day. The thing I'll say about this is that it's fluid. Uh, the the goal change. the goal stated in the Senate rules is to provide notice of what will be heard at a hearing three days in advance, mm-hmm. and I think that's you know it's not an absolute requirement, so it's not absolutely 
complied with. But if you look and you stay on top of it, you can see what's going to be happening day to day. And there's seating for the public in some of these hearing rooms. Like I've covered hearings as a reporter, and we ended up standing and have seats for us. But so <laughs> members the, of the public can can sit. There, right? there is room for the public. Sometimes ample room. The plug I'll put in the Senate building is a very new building. It was completed in 2016, and the hearing rooms there are very spacious. They can accommodate the public. It's easy to see see and hear everything that's happening. And then at some point at each hearing, there's an opportunity for for the public to speak, to testify, or is it certain times? Certain times. Certain um, times. But, and usually on the – and I would suggest going to the main legislature's page mm-hmm. rather than the Senate page if you're looking at all the committee hearings. Um, there's a combined calendar that pulls in the House and the Senate and the joint um, commissions. Mm-hmm. So the schedule is in one place and there are the bills listed. And it usually gives you a contact to the committee administrator if you're interested in testifying. And so far this session compared to you know previous sessions, previous years, are we seeing more people? Watch, observe, coming to testify? Some hearings have been uh, heavily attended. Mm-hmm. Yeah, For example, the I guess I'll call it the marijuana bill uh, mm-hmm. is being heard in many, many committees. It needs, because of the the scope of the bill, it touches a lot of different committee jurisdiction areas. It's traveled there, and it's been, I think, it's safe to say, well attended uh, each instance when it's heard. Uh, the, the little plug I'll put in here if people are looking to testify, what Elizabeth said about contacting the committee administrator ahead of time is very true to find out if they will take testimony. And then mm-hmm. I think it's very helpful. You, usually folks have a minute or two uh, to provide their testimony. So be concise. A time limit, right. Think ahead. And my hot tip would be don't read your canned notes word for word. Think about a personal experience you may have that touches on the bill and a story you'd have to tell the the committee. About, personalize Yes, it. personalize it. Exactly. That's good advice. I've sat through a yeah. lot of this. so that's <laughs> Yeah. You, you're making me want to get up out of my seat and walk on down there. <laughs> but I got to check the schedule first, right? right, right. Okay. Uh, let's take another phone call as we talk about uh, the inner workings of the state legislature and, and how we can participate in the process as members of the public, uh, get information, attend hearings. Uh, what, what questions do you have about just how, how things work? You can uh, call and talk with our two guests who are administrators who've been at the state capitol for many years. Call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. Let's go to Minneapolis and take a phone call from David. David, thank you for waiting. And what did you want to ask or share with us? Um, I would just like you to talk about the total process that a bill goes through to either be uh, passed or defeated. Now, this is, I know, is a very complicated process. Somebody has to write that bill. Who Mm -hmm. writes it? Mm -hmm. Then it has to go through many steps just to get a hearing, just to get into committees, just to get onto the floor for debate. How many many steps are typically required for a piece of legislation? And to become a law. I would would suggest you take a, a, a concrete example. Let's say, a public housing project, for example, that's okay. going to be financed by the state. How? Who's going to write it? What does it? What are the steps that it has to go through just to just to get in front of legislatures mm-hmm. to and, get a hearing? Okay. Ooh, David, a, a great uh, student today. David has asked an, an excellent question. Thank you, David in Minneapolis, who called in. And uh, I'm going to start with you, uh, Tom. You've talked about being concise, so uh, give us a little history here on like. Uh, an idea, uh, uh, in this case, he, he offered up uh, public housing. Who writes a bill? And, 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 then, and then what happens? Well, sure thing. 
And yeah, how much time have we got? But uh, <laughs> you so, have. Well, I'll give I give you two minutes. On this sorry, I give you two. Well, one thing I want to say at first, I'll, I'll take you back. And a lot of you know, sort of the resources we've heard here to already are on the web. Um, I do want to be clear: there are people you can talk to as well. Uh, there's an office in the Senate called Senate Information that we've talked about, and the House has something similar. Yeah, because not everybody's on the on websites on the internet, so I can there, call there and talk to There are phone numbers for these places. Okay. Yes. All right. Yes. Um, we can. And I'm going to go those. ahead. I'm going to let our listeners know we will put these resources, these websites and phone numbers we're mentioning on my website <laughs> or on NPR News website on my show page. So people will be able to find it later. Okay, go ahead. Well, and then um, I'll take you back to the main page for the Senate, okay. chock full of useful information. And there are guides to the legislative process there that are written for people who are new to that process. That'll walk you through what I like right. to call sort of the schoolhouse rock part of this. How, I does, like, there we go. how does a bill become a law? What are the steps along the way? Who's writing the bill? Yep. Yep. So begin with that. And I think this kind of relates back to contacting your legislator. Let's say you had a particular issue you're concerned about and you know, maybe your your neighborhood or district or what have you, you could reach out to them perhaps even during the interim after the Senate's, uh, you know, after the legislature's adjourned for the, for the year um, and begin working on that. Let them know what your concerns are. They might want to meet with you, uh, flesh out the details a little bit more. And then at some point, they're going to turn to the nonpartisan staff to put together a bill draft. So any state senator, any state representative can write a bill, and they would typically go to their staff and maybe call up Elizabeth, help us with the language, with the research in the library. And, uh, and then, well, exactly. For background, they'd talk to Elizabeth. Yep, right. Yep. Or call a const- or get consti- constituent input to yes. write the bill, the language yep. for yep. it. Yep. So, and then, you know, typically at that point, uh, with the housing example, they'd be working with a state agency. They'd bring in some folks there, get a bunch of people around a table um, in, you know, in a meeting and think about where they want to go with that. If, if you know, <laughs> presuming that you get their interest in whatever this concern is, then uh, the important next step is introducing that legislation. And that begins, you know, once the, once the legislature is convened for the year, any member can introduce as many bills as they want. Um, so, so of, hey, I want to talk about this. Correct. Right. Um, so bills come from the revisor's office. Members will receive what are called, and I'm really maybe going a little too far into the weeds here, but they'll get the jackets for the bill. And there's a very, you know, this is a very formal element to it. You have the bill in your possession when you have the jackets. They'll drop those jackets with, with my office. Wait and, a minute. So a, a physical printed out copy? Is that what you right. mean? Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah, with signatures, two copies. Uh, yeah, a lot of requirements. Um, very, again, very formal. Um, Want to be very definite about this and record it very carefully. So then once a bill is introduced, uh, it's got to be referred to a committee. And probably the committee of primary jurisdiction is going to be the first committee hearing that bill. Lots of committees there um, and lots of bills stack up in those committees. And this is sort of, I think, what your listener was beginning mm-hmm. to talk about. That stack, um, stacking that there's, up. There's, you know, what they can't, they almost always will not hear all bills referred to that committee. It's been done very few times in the time I've worked um, for the Senate. So, um, again, what's going to drive the interest in that bill? Who are the, who are the co-authors? Um, you know, there's, this is sort of where politics enters. Does it help to have a co-author? For sure, yep. I think you know, and and sometimes um, there's you can send a message that way with a lot of co-authors. There's a lot of interest in a bill. So that's telling you a lot of people care about this. People people are watching the introductions right. and they see on the list of introductions. Look at this. Here's you know several bills. Uh, they look identical and they have a lot of authors on the Senate side. On the House side, they list 
uh, all uh-huh. the authors in one spot. So you can see it sometimes right away. So is there a process of then co- condensing if you have several legislators who all have the same idea and they all have jackets on these bills? Like, is there some process then where it becomes just like the one thing to ensure that it actually happens? I begin to speculate a little here, but you got to look to who the interested parties are and the interested members. And then maybe seniority plays a role. Um, who should logically be the chief author? Um, you know, politics. Yes, exactly. This is, this is, <laughs> <laughs> we got to make some room for politics here. Right. So precisely. Elizabeth, you're nodding. Uh, what what do, does uh, our caller need to know about like how does like a bill actually get a chance to, to go to a hearing? How does it move forward? I'm not exactly sure. I think that is really <laughs> where the political side of things plays a huge role. And um, Tom and I are each one step back from the really political mm-hmm. aspect of things. Um, one point I wanted to make is that the House has 35 authors, the ability to have up to 35 authors. The Senate, I think, is um, limited to five. Mm-hmm. So that sort of really clarifies the level of interest in a bill. Also, bipartisan um, support we hear about of a bill. Bipartisan really support. So yeah, tell us yeah. more about what what's the value of that? Bipartisan support. For so well, you're asking about co-authors, and yeah. that's one way that um, bill authors will demonstrate they have bipartisan support. They'll have, you know, members from both parties signing on to the bill, that sends a signal this is something that might be more widely accepted um, and often creates a lot of interest in that bill. Okay, let's take more phone calls. Uh, thank you. Nice job. Two minutes. You did it. Uh, in Mendota Heights, Dwayne is on the phone. Good morning, Dwayne. And, and what is your question about how things work at the state capitol? Well, when I've sat through committee hearings sometimes, like, for instance, the driver's license for all yes. um, uh-huh. hearing, the there was no uh, option for a Spanish translation. So many of the Hispanic... Uh, persons in the committee hearing room were unable to understand probably the discussion. And I was wondering if there's any thought on providing translation services. Excellent question. Uh, Dwayne in Mendota Heights, uh, what's the status of translation services uh, when there are hearings and when important things are being debated? What, what is happening there, Tom? I should probably be a little more up to date on this than I am. I do know that um, we can we can contract with the Department of Administration for state provided interpreters in legislative hearings. So when witnesses testify, uh, if they need to testify in their native language, um, you know, non non English testimony can be translated for the benefit of the members of the committee. But I think the caller is asking about you know a simultaneous translation for people watching the hearing. Mm. Um, that that I know is you know a topic of interest and something that folks are looking at. Elizabeth might know a little bit more about that? I have just heard interest in um, the, providing more language translation services. So an example where a phone call, an email, or a meeting with a legislator might be valuable like to make it very clear that this is something that more people want to see. And then you mentioned watching hearings. Uh, how do we do that? Because I, I often see like a lot of the, there's there's televised. Uh, there are some televised hearings, but not all of them. What can you tell folks about that? Um, well, so this is one of the side effects of COVID that's kind of intriguing. Um, everything had to go remote during COVID, uh-huh. which meant that basically all hearings um, were streamed or otherwise, you know, basically simultaneously available for viewing to the public uh, through the internet. That has largely remained in place. So um, again, it's it's really a web based function. Um, there is a way to watch some of the hearings and, and floor activity on, on public TV as well. But going through the Internet, again, uh, using that main page and the, the calendar uh, that we referred to earlier will direct you to how to be able to watch uh, the hearing. It might be on YouTube. Uh, the Senate has some streaming services. On YouTube? Again, I, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, Elizabeth is 
even more familiar than I am with these okay. topics. There's a lot of capacity. Uh, there was a developed uh, capacity was really built up during COVID, and that's continuing. continuing. And I think there's Good. now a much higher level of expectation of being able to watch a hearing in real time or being able to watch it an hour later after it ended. So there's, uh, a, I think the House has four streams constantly. I think the Senate has two streams. Mm-hmm. So you really can watch nearly anything that's going on in the legislature. It's remarkable. Let's go back to the phone lines uh, and talk with our listeners in Rochester. We have Tammy on the phone. Tammy, thank you for waiting. What did you want to ask or tell us? Well, I just wanted to uh, talk about how accessible the whole process is at the Capitol. Uh, For about the last decade, I'm a a member of NAMI, and on uh, Thursday this week, I'm going to Day on the Hill uh, for NAMI and a number of uh, organizations. We get together and meet with our our legislators there. um, Tammy, I want to tell people what NAMI is. You're talking about the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Yes. NAMI, okay. So you're interested in mental health. What are you going uh, to the Capitol for? Uh, we uh, get together, we talk about all of the different bills that are coming uh, up to um, the legislate uh, the legislature and um, uh, look at all of those different things. We talk about those in the morning. Uh, we have a rally in the Rotunda at about noon. And uh, then we go off and we meet with our um, individual legislators. Um, so I've made a... a an appointment with one of my legislators um, who has time in the Mm -hmm. afternoon. And I've done this, as I said, for about the last decade. And so I've had the the opportunity to see the impact. The um, process, right. Thank you, Tammy. Tammy in Rochester is getting it done. Uh, I want to hear about the rallies. I, As a reporter, I've covered uh, rallies in the rotunda, rallies on the steps. Uh, How does that come to be? If a, if a person or a group would like to have a, a, a rally at the state capitol, what, what do we do? What's the first step? Well, I think one thing I'd say about that is if it's a larger group, what they need to do is work. Um, and again, um, this is one more feature that's available on the main page. Um, there's It supplies links um, to the Department of Administration, which manages the public spaces in the capitol, and they need to obtain a permit. Um, if you're going to have a larger gathering. Outside or inside? Uh, I think both. You, you know, maybe you're stumping me a little bit there, but certainly for anything inside the Capitol. What's um, larger? 100, 200, 300? Elizabeth, do you know? I don't know, but okay. I know that the outside spaces are also have to be arranged Permitted. in advance. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But um, And even smaller spaces like a, a meeting room can be reserved mm-hmm. for a group. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, Tammy's saying like she is going uh, for um, – mental health to be a part of of a movement, a lot of people who are concerned about uh, one particular issue. And so does does that happen quite a bit where you sometimes you go to work and you see like, oh, there's a group of people and there are signs. Does that happen with some frequency that we have rallies there at the Capitol building? Almost constantly. Um, Today is uh, deaf, deaf, blind and hard of hearing day. Mm -hmm. Um, There's Bemidji Day. There's Future Farmers of America Day. um, And they often wear outfits um, in addition to signs, so you can kind of identify them, but that's constant, um, especially the beginning part of the session. So, I what would do you think that does? Like, some of them get media coverage, but what do you, what message do you think it sends to the folks who are coming and going to work? 
Well, I think a big part of it is um, reinforcing the interest in a particular topic with the members they're meeting with. Um, and it's it's sort of that exchange of ideas the listener was referring to. Um, and then making a visible demonstration um, that, that you hope might attract the attention of other members uh, who are maybe, you know, considering what this issue means. So it's, and it's an opportunity. It's, you know, an organized um, opportunity to meet with a whole variety of different members in their offices and kind of collectively as well. That's, that's certainly what we observe walking through the hallways in the Capitol. And like Elizabeth said, it can be kind of overwhelming. I mean, mm-hmm. you'll see three or four different group, large groups uh, kind of moving through the different spaces in the Capitol at any given time. It can mm-hmm. become a very crowded place, very energetic. And, uh, you know, Tom and Elizabeth, and I said, and I do mean this, we're not here today to debate issues, but one uh, topic at the Capitol that, that people have you know, have a lot of feelings about has to do with this the state budget surplus that we currently have seventeen point five billion dollar surplus. So, uh, Tom, as an administrator, can you explain uh, where did the surplus come from? How, how did how did we end up with a seventeen point five billion dollar surplus? Well, this is where I wish I could phone a friend and talk. About, uh, <laughs> in general, I mean, yeah, like, how does that happen? I, I, I'll put in a plug for the the <laughs> office I, I used to direct, Senate Council Research and Fiscal Analysis. Ooh. The Senate's principal fiscal analyst will be able to give you a very very detailed and intelligent answer on this question. Uh, there are a variety of sources. Obviously, it's these are public revenues, um, and and they come from a variety of different uh, funding streams. Some from the federal government. There's a lot of money during the pandemic, uh, uh, and you know it kind of created a large part of what you see is uh, sort of. And this might be a little bit of an insider term, but the one-time portion of the surplus. There's a smaller portion of that surplus that really is available for what we would think of as, you know, programs that continue year to year. I think that number is in the neighborhood of about five billion or so for for kind of ongoing funding, and the remainder um, is what you would call one-time funding. So I can tell you that about it. You can tell me this: what happens if there is a a stalemate with the budget? If there's like a, a partisan stalemate, then what happens? What what does what do the rules say about that? Um, well, we're going to have a problem with the state budget, um, and, and come the end of the fiscal year, if there, if the legislature has not appropriated funding, we'd be back in a situation that was faced a couple of times during the past 10 years or so. And really this was then thrown open to the courts to determine what amount of money would be available on a continuing basis, uh, after July 1st. That I think is a situation most people would say they hope to avoid. <laughs> Elizabeth, uh, as we were talking about bills and, and how uh, an idea becomes a bill, how does it get a hearing? What about, you know, sometimes bills have amendments. So how does an amendment to a bill come to be? Uh, I, well, they're drafted also by um, House uh, Research and Senate Council and, and others, too, um, The House, I think, has a much more formal process for um, amendments on the House floor. The Mm -hmm. Senate, I think, is more – a little bit more liberal in that. Um, They can be oral amendments in committee. Um, So I've – we've been at lots of committee hearings where there's an oral amendment and the um, Senate counsel or House research person is writing it down as they speak. After the and, there's a comma. So (laughs) (laughs) – Um, I have a historical question for you. What's the historical reason behind having two governmental bodies? Like, why do we need a House and a Senate? Well, Nebraska made a different choice. (laughs) So it's not necessarily required. Um, But there have been um, many times the... uh, there's been proposals to eliminate one body or the other in Minnesota. 
I do uh, not never. recently, mm-hmm. but I think Jesse Ventura was an advocate of proponent, that. Yes. Yeah. I can give you a little bit of background on mm-hmm. it. I mean, certainly a lot of state legislatures were patterned after uh, the grand compromise at the federal level, you know, that led to the U.S. Constitution. And that obviously was the tension between states that had smaller populations and larger populations. The one chamber was composed of, you know, what you would call the directly elected um, sort of one-to-one representation for population in that state, the House, and then the the Senate with you know two members regardless of the population of the state. That sort of set up the idea of a bicameral legislature. So I think most state legislatures adopted the bicameral component. And over mm-hmm. the years, there's a very complicated history with redistricting as it affected state you know representation at the state government level. But that's evolved into what we have today. Now, what did Nebraska do? Elizabeth. They're a unicameral legislature. So they just have a Senate. They do not have a, a lower body. Is that recent or that's been that way for a while? I think since uh, statehood. Huh? I, I actually think, I, I, boy, I hesitate okay. to do this. I heard, the ever, long time. I heard the ever correct, Elizabeth, but I think this is the 1930s. <laughs> okay. Well, still for over. a long yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that. All right. Uh, I want to take, a, let's see, another phone call from a listener as we talk about uh, just the proceedings at the state capitol. What questions do you have about how, how things work? Uh, let's take a phone call. This is uh, in Minneapolis. We have Kathy on the phone. And Kathy, what did you want to share with us or, or ask? Oh, hi. Thank hi. you. Uh, this is great. Please do mm-hmm. another show on this because there's lots of questions. And I'd like to give a shout out to the revisor's office. I had a longtime friend that just retired from there, so they work really, really hard. Um, my question is, back in the mid-2000s, I was really active in um, issues of voting rights and uh, train rail safety. And one thing that always mystified me and made me upset was the end of session you get to the conference committees you've got the house bill and the senate bill they go through the whole process but there's some differences between the two so it goes to conference committee and these conference committees were often held on short notice or canceled on short notice and oftentimes they were closed to the public so has that procedure changed? Is it something each session uh, as the new leadership takes over, do the rules change? Or is it still the same thing? Because really these um, hearings need to be open to the public and um, available to us uh, who've worked on it so hard. Thanks, and I'll listen on the air. Okay, a question about conference committees. And then it looks like I also have another caller who wants to ask about conference committees. So I'm going to go ahead and take that uh, call, too, before you respond to Kathy. Uh, in Laverne, we have Dale on the phone. And, Dale, what's your question? Well, uh, my question is uh, about access to committees uh, in greater Minnesota. I appreciate the ability to zoom in and testify. I've done it, and it's, it's wonderful. But uh, sometimes... It would be great if they would come to us in greater Minnesota. What's the logistics? Uh, How difficult is that? And is there any plans to do that? Okay, uh, two questions. Uh, Thank you, Dale, there in Laverne. So, okay, so Kathy specifically wants to know about conference committees. What's a conference committee? And are they sometimes behind closed doors? Uh, Elizabeth, Tom, who wants to take that one? I can take a stab at it. So Mm -hmm. the... The rules and the statute on the what's called the legislative open meeting law are pretty clear that if there is a quorum of the con- the conference committee present, uh, it needs to be held in public and open to the public. Quorum and meaning the quorum majority meaning enough the- members to take action. So, okay. oh, it, and this gets into the weeds a little bit, but typically there are five members from the House and five from the Senate. If you had three from each body present, all okay. in one room, the the rule I think is clear. Okay. Uh, it needs to be done publicly now. That does not prevent, say, the two chairs of the conference committee from meeting privately and, you know, having a discussion about what they think they might take up at the meeting later that day. Okay. 
And uh, Dell and Laverne um, are Minnesotans who many of our Minnesotans live in, in rural communities, uh, quite a, a driving distance from St. Paul. Uh, Dell says that, you know, what do what what about this access of on Zoom being able to participate in hearings? Um, are we seeing that? And will we see more of it? Will that continue? Uh, there's been the Senate in particular has um, really robust uh, hybrid meeting capability. Uh, the House, partially because of technology, um, is a little bit more limited, but I don't think that's going away. I think the ability to testify remotely is really um, demanded and um, really opens up the legislature to the, the the whole state. You don't have to commute so necessarily. It, it does happen sometimes? Frequently. Yeah, frequently. Yes. Okay. And then and you see more of that occurring moving forward, maybe expanding those resources so that those folks can do that? I, th- I think this is something that will be a permanent feature of legislative hearings. It's a development. It's, it's kind of like, you know, the, the streaming and, and the visibility right. of all those hearings. This is something that will be with us, I think, permanently. Okay. So it's a good, it's the result of COVID and it's a good result. <laughs> well, there's some, there are some things yeah. <laughs> we did get better at, right, during mm-hmm. the pandemic. Uh, we have about two minutes left. So uh, any encouraging words you would like to say to those of us who are sitting back and reading the headlines and frustrated and upset and maybe feel like powerless? Anything you would say to folks who, about, again, access to state government and, and how your voice can be heard? Tom? Well, I think I really want to emphasize that, and one caller kind of alluded to this, it's, it's really... It, State government can be surprisingly accessible. These are folks who make really important decisions uh, involving often large sums of money, um, but they have manageable districts and want to get to know their constituents. And if you have particular concerns and want to express them, you know, and it helps, you know, in a constructive way, you want to engage. Concisely. And concisely. Yep. You know, their time is valuable, but um, there are ways to engage in ways where you can meet with them personally. Um, and, and there's so much of the capital that really is visible and you don't have to be an expert. There are resources available to, to show you, you know, what's happening with a particular bill. One thing I want to land on just very briefly um, we've talked about the offices of House and Senate information. It's that human element there. And if you're not a web person and don't feel like, you know, drilling to the bottom of the Internet to figure right. an answer out, uh, you can pick up the phone and call the direct numbers for those offices. And you could ask a question as basic as, you know, what's happening with the driver's license bill? Just to pick on something we've we've talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Where What's happening next with it? Um, where and someone it will go? talk to me. And you can talk to them. Or um, kind of what you were saying before the show, Angela. Um, you could begin with the basics. I'm not sure who represents me. You can call right. those folks and they'll they'll figure it out for you. Mm-hmm. So it's that human. And a last resort, everyone, drop Tom Bodden's name. <laughs> Tom, I heard on NPR, Tom told me that I could call you. And that's going to be our Angela. closing. We've been talking with Tom Bodden, the Secretary of the Senate, and Elizabeth Lincoln, who is Director of the Minnesota Legislative Reference Library. Thank you so much. I learned so much, and I, I hope our listeners did as well. Thank you for your fine questions, everybody. This conversation today was produced by Danelle Cloutier. Be safe, everybody. We'll talk again tomorrow morning at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.